Hi guys. So today I have an amazing episode. I have an amazing guest. Um, you guys are going to like him. His name is Josh Connolly. Now, Josh Connolly, he works with people who are recovering from addiction and specifically alcohol, which is his own story as well. I don't want to speak too much because I feel like his messaging is so clear. His messaging is great. And he, I think he lands on people who are struggling. And I know for most of from you, my listeners, some of you guys have gone for family estrangement, which was a, as a result of one of your family member, whether it's your mom, dad, siblings, um, have a, some type of addiction, whether it's to alcohol, drugs, or maybe any other type of addiction out there. So I'm not going to speak too much. I'll just let Josh uh, come on and talk a little bit more about himself. Welcome, Josh. Thank you. Um, I look really grateful to be here and looking forward to the conversation as well. Um, yeah, as you said, like a, a lot of what I do is I work with people that are struggling um, to kind of heal from any kind of addiction. Um, yeah. But that's not the only thing that I do. I, I work with a lot of um, corporate organizations as well as individuals that are kind of looking to build any kind of emotional resilience. Um, yeah. And, and you know, to me, emotional resilience is, is, is not necessarily the ability to just keep moving forward. It's more about... Um, finding ways to be able to understand what I need and, and, and get my needs met and know what, what resources I need in my life, um, which has been important to me. Um, and a lot of people that I work with and interact with in the work that I do have often grown up in difficult environments themselves. So I'm an, ambas I'm an ambassador for a charity called NACOA, which is uh, the National Association for Children of Alcoholics. And we're predominantly uh, a helpline to support children that have grown up in um, an environment where one or more parents had a problem with addiction. So yeah, that's kind of me and uh, who I am and what keeps me busy in my life today. Oh, brilliant. I was going to say, maybe you can, you can send me that link so I can put on a show notes below just in case somebody who needs to sure. um, know somebody that can be supported by that charity as well. Yeah, for um, sure. So for my listeners who don't know you, and you just said you briefly you just you just don't work with addicts you work with um people recovering from addiction rather um but you also do a spectrum of other work um when a lot of my listeners um have gone through family estrangement and in some cases their estrangement is caused as a direct result of um addiction well maybe one or two family members uh, has some type of addiction is family estrangement something that you're familiar with or I've experienced uh yeah I mean like on a personal level um I'm not estranged from I mean my dad passed away when I was nine and I'm still quite close with my mum but I interact probably daily um with people that are find themselves estranged from from their families for for for, for lots of different reasons and I do think that and you would probably you know know much better than me but I think it's one of the most misunderstood um, things within our society. Like the people that I interact with that, um, and I'm not, I'm not just speaking to the gallery here. I'm not just saying this because of my audience, but genuinely, and I, actually there's a, there's a video on my YouTube channel um, yeah. that talks about how some of the strongest people that I've ever met are people that have um, had to turn their back on, on parents um, as the only way to be able to find any kind of peace and, um, serenity or freedom in their life uh, yeah. and we live in a society that doesn't want to accept that we live in a society that um, 
is very quick to say cut any toxic people out of your life you know you don't need any of that energy but then the moment that you mention that it may be a that it's a parent that's that toxic influence on your life um then there seems to be a change in people so like yeah, yeah to come to your question I, I i see it all the time yeah yeah and what it is like for because i guess you're right in terms of when now i think society shift has got people to look more into their mental health you know i guess back in the day it was easier to disregard that bit you know you you stay together for the sake of the greater good mm. but now it's like okay what's how is this relationship called impacting your mental health so do you need to walk away and and i think there's a this idea that you know people do just cut people away but sometimes working in estrangement i've realized that it's not a decision people make easy, uh, easily rather. It's normally an ongoing process. Sometimes the, the estrangement is happening in mind long before they actually took the decision to walk away. And so I can imagine you you work with people perhaps they've had to walk away from people and other people, people have walked away from them. And so if you work with somebody whose family's walked away from them, because there's somebody here listening who's perhaps walked away from their mom, from their dad as a result of addiction or perhaps some other mental health issues undiagnosed how do they normally process that look i think it's really it's a it's a really difficult question to answer because it's it, I, you know more than most things that i can think of um it's probably you know about as complex as it comes right because a lot of these people uh, often have an underlying love for the person that they've had to become estranged from and and yeah. you know I, I often talk about detaching with love um and and, and particularly when it's a an apparent a, a, a parent who has an addiction yeah um in, in those cases what the people might experience is is yeah. glimpses of the parent that they might want to stay in touch with right yeah. and those 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 glimpses um bring with them guilt about yeah. the decision that they've made they bring with them maybe enough hope to make them feel like they're making the wrong decision yeah um, but then ultimately those glimpses are always followed by yet another example of why they've made the decision that they have um yeah so i think it's really difficult and again because most people i know that yeah. it, surround these people tell them you'll regret it in the end you know, uh, you only get one mum and dad and all of these kind of things. And, and these are the things that they're hearing from the people close to them around them, right? That, that maybe have no concept or idea of what they're going through because people talk from their own experience, right? So yes. so so people will think that, you know, my my mum or my dad's done some, some bad things, but I would never cut them out, right? And that's completely different to what these people are experiencing. It's completely different. It's not even remotely the same. And I don't think people- No, it's are, not, yeah. They're not necessarily aware of that, yeah. You know, I remember we, I, I did this list of things not to say to somebody who's estranged uh, mm. from the parent or a sibling is that you only have one sister, you only have one brother, you only have one mom, one mom, one dad. And I think cause that tends to minimize the harm that's been done. That's like, well, I know you feel like that, but you only have one, this one parent or this insert their family member. And often to the person hearing that is very invalidating. Mm. And I think in the end, sometimes we want our feelings validated, right? And you're right, people do insert their own opinions into them just because how they would handle something or they'll say, well, I will never become, I've been mistreated by insert the family member, but I will never ever think about 
you know, I guess going estranged from them, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you said something which I have not really used before, um, detaching with love. Mm. That's interesting. I think like when, you know, when you have something like addiction. Yeah. Right. And this is not true for all people. Like, yeah. but, but, but for some people whose parents struggles with addiction, Mm-hmm. somewhere lost beneath that addiction is someone that yeah. could be loved and that could have a relationship you know yeah. a parent or a relationship with but the addiction has kind of you know become too much and yeah. and that's gone and so you know when I say when I say detach with love yeah these are not decisions that people you know choose or wish or want to take right these are oh. nobody nobody makes this decision lightly and actually sometimes mm-hmm. it's actually the best thing for all parties you know um including the person struggling with addiction themselves because um it kind of shows that there has to be boundaries in anything mm-hmm. and this i think that you know the conversation around addiction in some ways makes it even more tricky in these situations because we're we're kind of like opening up the idea that addiction is an illness right and it, you know it's not a matter of choice and uh, all of these things all of which are you know i would believe to be true however when, when your parent is struggling with addiction um it's very difficult to be the person to, to, to kind of give them the help support and compassion that maybe society as a whole should be giving them exactly. um, and that you know that's the kind of hard thing i i often get people coming to me saying you know mm-hmm asking me what they think they should do, what I think they should do. And I think they're often very surprised when I say you should put yourself first and do whatever it takes to make sure that your own well-being is, is at the center of your world now that you're an adult, right? And I think people are often surprised to hear me say that because I talk about so compassionately about people that struggle with addiction, but both, both are true. Yeah, and I think they both can be true because at the same time, as somebody who have um, a sibling of mine, a, a family member of mine who struggle with addiction, I know it can be very difficult to try to sustain a type of relationship which um, can be actually quite harmful to you on the other other side of the person who's not using substance. So I can actually understand both that the the yearning and the need to have that and what it could be, what it it can be, but at the same time versus what it is and how to, I guess, just have a little disconnection um, in a way that makes sense to you um mm. do you know what i mean because sometimes if someone's got severe addiction it can be dangerous to you your emotional well-being and your physical well-being in some cases in some severe severe cases Mm-mm. well look i mean I, I think that addiction is a family illness right so i think that certainly if you're a child that grew up in that environment yeah um, i actually think the children that grow up in an environment with a parent that's addicted need as much Mm-hmm. healing and recovery as the person who's struggling with the addiction themselves I think they need just as much um it's particularly if they're grown up in that environment yeah. um and I don't think we, I don't think we talk about that enough but but when we reach our adulthood and we're trying to build a life of our own yeah. um we can say you know co- co- uh, compassion and consequence can coexist so I can say yeah. that I can have compassion for how and why you are the person that you are in this moment and and I have a life now I have my family now and some of the behaviors that are happening as a result of where you find yourself are not acceptable in my world Mm. and so I guess when you talk about detach with love it's It's, I love I love you but 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 this is not acceptable 
Exactly. And in terms of family illness, you know, you look at as addiction as a family illness, as in it's not just a person with addiction that needs healing, it's essentially the entire family. Because I think in addiction cases, people, they often forget about the, the, the people who are witnessing somebody, their loved ones suffering the addiction. The focus tends to be on the person with addiction because I think everybody wants to get them better, right? Or for them to have this, this uh, to get the person to the image of what the person should be, their maximum potential. But often not forgetting um, the people have to witness their loved one. And if I come back, I can go back to my own experience. I remember there's many, many years ago, I was on edge, like my loved one's gonna die, uh, a family member because of the type of, the volume of drugs that were taken. And most people are like, oh, how is this family member doing? And I would explain, but sometimes not knowing this, sometimes I lie in bed at night wondering they're gonna be finding a ditch. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. And it's really, really difficult. And then I guess sometimes, when you detach from that, I guess sometimes you also detach from those worries and those anxiety that comes with watching somebody, I guess, withering away. And that has kind of been my personal experience. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So I noticed you're quite open. I follow you on Instagram and you're very open and very transparent about your childhood trauma and particularly about your, your late father's struggle with alcohol and later your struggle with alcohol yourself. Are you able to walk us through that process, um, through that journey? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I never knew that the two were linked. And I think what happens when you grow up in that environment when you're a child is that nobody's talking about it, right? You learn very quickly that you don't talk, you don't trust, and you don't feel. And it's everybody within the family takes on a certain role to help keep the family secret, which is yeah. that, you know, your dad drinks in that way. And I learned to... Mm -hmm be emotionally responsible for my mum. So at a very young age, I was like very in tune with how my mum was feeling. And so would push down how I felt and make sure that I didn't burden my mum with um, any more of my own struggles. And so, yeah, I, I, you know, I became ever the people pleaser. I became an, an expert at being there for my mum and everybody else and how they felt, but incapable of being there for myself. And, you know, when there's a lot of kind of, difficult feelings and emotions and behaviors happening within the household and nobody's ever talking about it you often find yourself sat there thinking like what's wrong with me why do I why do I feel this way and if nobody ever helps me to feel safe in my body when I experience difficult emotions then I will find ways to escape them and for me in the end that was alcohol and I think it's different yeah. for everybody I think everybody um takes on different things for me it was alcohol and um I never correlated the two. I think shame does that, right? I never, at the age of nine years old, when when yeah. I'd lost my dad, I, ne I never thought I've lost my dad and that's why I feel so bad. Yeah. I thought, I thought I am bad and I lost my dad. And there's a difference there, right? Shame, the shame is the idea that there's something wrong with me. Yeah. And so I think I, you know, I sort of ran away from that for, for a long time and I used alcohol and the thing about alcohol in, our society is it's you know as a sober person I know it's the only drug that I have to explain not doing to people because it's yes. it's more bizarre for me to be sober than it is yeah. for me to be to have a problem with alcohol um in in, in today's world um but when I was 24 that's when I mm -hmm. decided to stop drinking and it was very soon into or early on into my sobriety that I started to realize that actually my drinking was a response to something um, yeah. my, my drinking was a response to 
the ways that I felt as a, you know, growing up and that I'd used it to suppress my difficult emotions. And so in the, in the kind of 10 years that have followed since I stopped drinking, I've had to uh, do a lot of work to, to kind of find a way to be a respectable member of society and as, you know, and to be somebody who doesn't always feel miserable. You know, I've had to work really hard at that um, because I, because I don't use alcohol anymore. It sounds like to me, you um, there's the phrase that people use, you're turning your pain into purpose, because I can see now you help a lot of other people who have gone through the same thing. Mm. And in terms of, say, growing up, you you know, because of the dynamics at home, you learn not to trust, you learn not to talk, and there was an element of keeping the secrets. I always find there's something very damaging about family secrets as well. And often the children who are unable to process those things, uh, it can leave them quite bewildered and I can see you said you're quite you're quite sensitive in picking up people's emotional people around you meeting other people's needs so I guess to some degree there was a level of maybe self-neglect for yourself because you're too busy trying to meet everybody else's needs yeah and look also when there's lots of things going on um yeah. within the household and lots of kind of feelings like I, I, we don't give enough um credit to how intuitive children are Children, are, like if, you know, I've got children myself and I heard that you said that you have earlier, right? Yeah. I can't, I can't hide how I feel from my children and I know it, right? And, and, and as a parent, when you're trying to hide from your feelings yourself yeah. and you can sense that your children are picking up on them, it's yeah. like, it's really hard to not um, suppress that in them, right? So yeah. that you can carry, continue to hide from that. I'm self-reflecting. I know this, like I, like yeah. if my if my one one of my daughters comes out and or my son says to me, you know what's wrong, mm-hmm. and I know and I know he's right. I know he's picking yeah. up on something I'm struggling with. Yeah. If I'm not ready to go there, I'll say no. Yeah. Everything's fine. Don't be silly, right? And I mm-hmm. teach him not to trust the ways that he feels. And yeah. so when that's happening all the time, there's different kind of feelings and emotions all going on under the carpet when you're a child. Yeah. Um, children are egocentric, right? Children. Yes. Uh, so yeah. so so. As a child, I don't, as a child, I'm not going, yeah. okay, dad's being like this because he's got a problem with alcohol and that's probably, you know, mm-hmm. a reaction to something in his life. And so there's obviously friction between my mum and dad and that makes sense. I'm not doing that as a child. I'm, I'm no. going, I'm going, why can't my mum be with me? Why can't yeah, my dad, there's, maybe if I try really hard at school, maybe if I, if I support the right football team or if I become really good at sport, then, mm-hmm. then maybe, then maybe, then maybe he won't do those things yeah? yeah and so you grow up with this belief that um that my value exists based on the role in which i adopted within that family environment when i was a child and that's the role that i carry on playing in my in my adult life you know yep i often find the roles we play as children they have a really strange role manifesting in our adult life as well yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. i guess for me i grew up in a household where uh my parents, they never argued in front of us, ever. Like, I have—I cannot tell you if I ever saw my parents arguing as a kid. They never did. But what they did, they were, we were a sense of tension. The tension was, you can cut it with a knife. So I guess um, that was their way of doing it. I guess to them, they didn't want to argue in front of the kids, but not realising we're quite intuitive. We can always pick things up. Um, the funny thing is, this, uh, I think it was about three weeks ago, I was a little bit upset about something, and... My son said, Mommy, are you all right? I said, I'm fine. He goes, no, mom, I know you're not. He just said, he gave me that look. And he went, I said, I know you're not okay. And I said, actually, you know, you're right. Because I didn't want to make it seem like he's somehow picking things that are not okay. I said, you know what, you're right, kid. I am not okay. 
But at the moment, what I am feeling and the things that I'm trying to process, I don't think is suitable for me to tell you. Mm. Uh, because I think number one, you're quite young. Number two, I don't think it's appropriate. So yes, you're right. There is something wrong. And it, once I figure out how to process that and explain to you what's happening, I'll be more than happy to do it. But for now, I just don't think this is the time. Mm. And I think that validated that he's able to pick up when his mom is not okay. Two, I, there's something up I will tell you when it's the right time, when I'm ready to, when I, once I've processed it myself. And um, yeah, and I think that's good. Other than, I think as a parent, sometimes we're like, no, everything's fine, I'm fine. And our kids be like, I'm pretty sure there's something not quite right. And we don't want them to start stepping on eggshells because they can pick something that of us that we're off. And we're saying we're fine, but at the same time, our mannerisms are, are coming across to be different. And kids are highly intuitive. And um, I'm thinking of ourselves, even as a child myself, who was very highly intuitive with people. You go in the room and you learn how to read. Mm. Um, I often want to work with people who um, say, if they didn't know the type of version of the parent they were coming home to, for example, they were physically abused, sometimes they don't know how to be. You become very acute of reading your environment and your room. You pick up different uh, people. You learn how to read body language to the T. Mm. especially when you've been on the receiving end of maybe abrupt physical assault as a child mm. you literally pick up on your environment you go and you assess it and then sometime you leave if it appears that something is not quite right in that room based on the body language of people yeah 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 and that hypervigilance you know um can be hugely problematic as an adult you know when you're picking up and taking responsibility for everybody the way that everybody feels it's um yeah. it's exhausting as an adult it is so exhausting. Um, so you often speak about trauma uh, from your childhood on your thing. Oh, my God. This hay fever is literally kicking me today. <laughs> I'm struggling. I'm going for a whole pack of tissue here. So you often speak about trauma. How did trauma you suffered in childhood impact you as an adult? Uh, look, in a lot of ways, it kind of shaped who I, who I became. And yeah. I think that's one of the hard things. I think that's one of the things that... Um, keeps a lot of people from 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 doing too much work on themselves there's a fear of who would I be without yeah. what I've become right yeah. and I think like it's important to distinguish traumatic events from from trauma yeah. so uh, there were traumatic things that happened to me mm. the trauma is what happened inside of me as a result of those things right the kind of internal wounding that I experienced and so yeah. you know this feeling that um, my likability is based on how useful I am to other people. Yeah. Um, my fear of communicating my needs to people that matter to me because I'm worried what perception that will give them of them. And I would much rather react to their needs and just become what's needed from them. And then that means that you lack boundaries. And then it means that you often feel misunderstood because you're not yeah. conveying your needs. You're keeping them to yourself. And, yes. you know, you become hypervigilant so you're very good at reading other people's minds and then you expect everybody else to be do that to yours and then when they don't you you're left feeling frustrated um so it kind of impacts and in the end i think what you're left with is is a big impact on all of your meaningful relationships because that's for me where trauma shows up like i you know i will talk openly about how much easier it is for me to come on a podcast and convey this kind of stuff than it is to, to do it in front of somebody who I'm trying to seek attachment from. Yeah, it becomes, becomes more tricky for me because then my trauma comes up and I start overthinking and worrying about perceptions of myself and am I still lovable if I say this and that? So it becomes very confusing in that way. Do you know what? I feel like when we 
I understand what, what you're saying. Uh, and I think in the end, when we're trying to seek attachment from somebody, I think the reason why we're scared to be so vulnerable, I think it's the rejection. Mm. Um, I think it's about them seeing something about them they're going to reject. Mm -hmm. Especially if you've got rejection and abandonment, abandonment wounds from childhood. I find that they have a stranger manifesting as an adult in adult relationship. Even in the way we show up as parents as well. It's especially if we haven't taken time to understand that actually what we went through as children, especially in the formative years, it was it's so heavily embedded in our subconscious mind to the extent that the way we behave, the way we think is actually dictated by our subconscious mind overall. And if we cannot tap in to understand where these feelings coming from, why do we behave in the way we do, we can find ourselves repeating much of the same familiar pattern that we, we literally hated as children growing up. Yeah, yeah. And there's nothing quite as painful. Painful is probably the right word. There's nothing quite as yeah. painful as, as when you catch yourself doing something as a parent that mm -hmm. you know, you know, it's one of the things you're trying to heal from, from your own childhood. And you're like, wow, I'm literally... You know, everything that goes against everything that I think should be doing, I'm doing it. Um, and I think that's, you know, because and, and then also on top of that, I think a lot of what is called, and this is just my perception, but I think a lot of what people call mental illness is mm -hmm. what you've just talked about, is me showing up to an adult like I'm still a defenseless child. Yes. Do you know what I, I think is because sometimes when we went for certain things, we didn't even have the language for it. Mm. Right. And it's maladaptive way. We learn maladaptive way to adopt to situations. But I would say, to be fair, that inner child did that as a coping mechanism. And that got you to where you are today. So I was, I'm very deeply appreciative of the very vigilant me because that vigilant me served this purpose. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's why I don't even like, um, you know, like when people say we call them limiting beliefs sometimes right and i go i don't like that i say call them survival beliefs because yes because, survival mechanism yes because they got you through right and actually so much of what causes me problems in my life today was incredible survival technique for example you know that tuning out that happens to me when i'm not there i'm not present and i you know i feel like i've got a bad short-term memory but actually yeah. what, what what i've got is an inability to be present often so i don't take in the information ah right? yes yeah, so 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 incredible survival mechanism when you're growing up in a house of chaos because i tune out and i don't have to be there mm. but then as an adult when i you know in a simple version of this my wife's saying we talked about this last week Yes, I've got no recollection of it That's whatsoever, right. yeah. and it becomes a problem. Kept me kept me alive when I was a child, and helped me survive when I was a child is a yeah. problem now. You know. Funny enough, my husband is the same. Is uh, that like, I, I don't remember that. And for me, I I detach. Like uh, when something happens, especially the way I show up in my other relationship with my husband, when something's really hard to process, I can literally detach. Like, mm. and is that like, oh, and he often say, "Marry me on a cliff again." I can tell you're on a cliff. Uh, and I'm here. Oh, no, no. You actually use the expression, I'm in a metal box. He goes, I go and lock myself in a metal tin box and mm. it, it cannot reach me from that box until uh, it's like, it's, you know, it's safe to come out. I would often joke is that it's safe to come out of your metal box that you've locked yourself in, that you've broken the shirt. And I think even as a dog, when, when, when we understand this thing, we can even talk about it. And that's what makes it so incredible. And um, I realized sometimes in order to break certain of these things that maladaptive behaviors that we had we had to adjust to even speaking about with it with our children in a way that makes them understand is actually really great i don't know if you how i don't know how old your kids are but my kids are at the age of understanding well two of them because i have an 18 and a 14 year old 
and mm. the four-year-olds, uh, certain the 14 and 18-year-olds, sometimes we're able to explain certain things. And actually, one thing I realize, even as a mom now, just saying sorry to the kids is as little as, you know what, I'm so sorry. That was nothing to do with you. You know, even sometimes we go back before we knew better the things that we've done and be like, remember that time when I lost my temper with you for that? That was nothing to do with you. That was in my inability to cope with what the stuff you're telling me and maybe not to even help you. At the time when I thought you were acting out really and truly, there was something going on. And I'm so sorry I handled that wrong. Because yeah. sometimes we as parents, I realize we don't know when and how with some of the damages that we're doing to cause harm to our kids. It could be the littlest thing that them coming from school and you're on your phone that they're like, hi, mom, and you don't even look up, say, how was your day at school today? So you don't even remember that, but that's something that I might even remember. Like they're coming from school and you even put in your phone down to even say, how was your day at school today? Do you see what I mean? Yeah, I do. I 100% see what you mean. And I like people often ask me, what's the, if you've got any parenting tips? And I say, I've, I always say I've got one and that is revisit. So like go back and say, you know, when you, you mm -hmm. know, to use the example you just used, you know, when you came in yesterday from school and I didn't even look up for my phone, I had a bit going on. I'm sorry about that. That was me. There's nothing to do with you. Yeah, that was me. And, yeah. to, you know, to do the same, you know, yesterday when I got, when I snapped with you yeah. and all you, all you'd done is like, like X, Y, or Z, yeah. like that was a real overreaction on my part. And that was because I was, I was stressed that day and that was nothing to do with you. Like the benefit of being able to do that's yeah. huge. I mean, my eldest is 16. So, um, yeah, so I've got similar, um, I've actually got six kids. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. So my eldest, yeah. yeah. So, well, my first, my daughter was born when I was 18, so. Ah, okay, yeah, that could, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, very young. So, um, yeah, I've got my youngest, a four and five, um, mm -hmm. and then a 10 and 11-year-old and a 13 and a 16-year-old. 16. Oh, so you, you, yeah, definitely, you've got the... I've got every age. <laughs> every age, even understanding, yes. Oh, no, that's good. Because, it, you know, the other day I was... Um, I was overhearing my, my husband talking with our eldest, he's 18, and... My husband, my husband actually brought up something that happened, I think, about five years ago. And he remembered. He's like, you know what? I remember five years ago you did that. And I was very angry with you. But my, I, I went overboard with my reaction. And he said, I, I, even till today, I still feel ashamed by me overreacting the way I did. I'm not saying what you did was correct. But I feel like as a dad, I should have handled that situation better. Yes, you made me mad, but there was no excuse. And I think when I was just overhearing and I was like, he said, there was no excuse for me to do what I did. There was no excuse whatsoever. And I am so sorry. When I heard those words coming from my husband and I was, in, I was kind of just on a hallway minding my own business. He just, I was thinking, I wonder what's that doing to our 18 year old? Like, what's that, how is it processing that? Like, cause some of us as an adult, we could never hear those words from, like mm. we're just never going to hear them and often my husband and I would discuss about what kind of things would you want to hear and can we say them now mm. why we can cause yeah I guess it's part of course correcting isn't it yeah yeah yeah, yeah for sure it is uh, okay so um you spoke you speak a lot about your own addiction um and how your recovery from that when was that haha -ha moment that came to you because you said it was the age of 24 what was the thing that just was like, no, enough is enough? What was that moment? 
I think, look, it's hard to kind of put my finger on it. For, like I had a moment where I was in the pub and I realized that alcohol wasn't working anymore. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important for me to say that alcohol really did work for me in the beginning. It did everything that I wanted and needed it to do. Um, yeah. But by the t- when I was 24, it, it didn't. I was just as miserable when I was drunk, no matter what, as I was when I wasn't drunk. So, so yeah. it kind of stopped working. But what happened for me is that when I stopped drinking, my life got, um, my internal world got harder because I, I took alcohol away and I was left with all the ways that I felt and I couldn't deal with it. And yeah. my aha moment came, I was nine months sober and I very seriously planned to take my own life. I'd had an, like, I couldn't deal with all of the, I was having panic attacks and everything. Uh-huh. And I went to see my kids and because I knew that I was checking out, that I was going to be gone, the past became irrelevant and I, the future was non-existent. And for the first time ever in my life, up until that point, probably, yeah. I was present with my kids. Yeah. I remember cuddling my daughter and thinking, wow, this is what it's supposed to be like. And I changed my mind about what I was going to do in that weekend. And and then from then really what I what I realized is that what was killing me literally killing me was coming from inside of me it was all of this undoubt with emotion and I and I kind of made a commitment yeah to as much as I could to be completely honest with myself from that moment forward um and I fall in and out of that but 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 mostly over the 10 years I've always come back to you know coming back to myself and finding what I need Oh wow, it's um, it's wow. That's so profound. It's mm. almost like a stage when, when you're ready to give up completely, and you're almost in your mind you're saying your final goodbyes. It must have felt like there was no hope at, at the time, but then something flicked on that day. Mm. I think yeah. it was like, like because when I planned it, when I decided that I was going to do it, I felt um like peace you know like I felt like um very at ease and and what I kind of learned from that is that all of my hardships were yeah because of the past and because of the future and when you eradicate them like I did yeah and I eradicated them by the decision that I made yeah I felt this real sense of freedom and a lack of burden um and that, uh, look, what I've realized in the 10 years since then as well is that the the most amazing moments in my life are when mm-hmm. when I'm fully present, yeah? When I'm playing snakes and ladders with my kids and I, um, I come around and think, wow, for the last 10 minutes, I was fully, like, I'd, I didn't think about anything else apart from what I was doing. I was fully present in that moment. Yeah. Um, and I think to a degree, that's what we're all chasing. And it's, yes. it's it, in today's world, it's harder and harder to come by um it is yeah there's always something especially with social media use I mean for when you have to work online your business online I guess you have kind of to be there but there's something quite damaging about it too as well that can just leave us a little bit uh, uh, listen I I didn't have social media until uh, until I had to get it for work and if I didn't have to use it for the work that I do I'm not just saying this I just wouldn't have it I wouldn't have it full stop Yes, over, oh, sometimes it's just overstimulation, I guess. Yeah. Um, I noticed on one of your Instagram posts, um, which is part of your curiosity series, you broke down the quote, recovery is about, it's not, recovery is about not stopping drinking, but creating a life that you don't want to run away from. Are you able to elaborate more on this one? I like your perspective on that. 
Yeah, so it's quite, it's like quite a common saying that recovery is not about stopping drinking. It's about creating a life that you don't want to run away from. And I think, you know, like I said on the Instagram thing, I, I think to a degree that is true. And I understand what we're saying in that. But but I think we have to be careful that we're not trying to control um, external influences. I think it's impossible for me to suggest that I'll be able to create a life that I don't want to escape from because things will happen yeah. and I'll want to escape. Actually, what I need to do is find ways to feel safe in my body in the moments when I do want to escape and, you know, come back to come back to myself. I'm scared. What yeah. am I worried about? Why do I feel unsafe in my body? How do I find ways to feel safe in my body? Um, and for me, that's what it, most of it comes back to in the end. Most of the work that I've done over the last 10 years is, yeah. has been, why do I want to escape? Why don't I feel safe? Yes, because often there's something there. And I, I guess what you're trying to say is that if we just do emotional inventory, we can often get to the root of the issue. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Like, you know, that for me, that's what it is. Why do I be curious? Why do I feel like this? What's going on? What am I scared of? Why am I why am I trying to get out of myself here? And I live with that level of curiosity. What I often find is so much of what I thought was my problem was actually the signal to, to the solution you know yes yeah that's true uh, often sometimes what we see as an issue sometimes the, the solution it lies somewhere within that complexity that we're trying to process as well yeah our, our mind is so weird honestly um <laughs> so i tend to focus a lot on mindset change as i believe in order to be to becoming good at processing this thing called life and all the elements that's thrown in our way. As you know, we are thrown into circumstances from the day that we are born. And I always say that you were thrown into things, I was thrown into things. I didn't pick, you didn't pick your socioeconomic, you didn't pick your parents, you didn't pick your socioeconomic status, you didn't pick the, 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 the era you were born in, the area, you didn't pick your parents' mental health, you didn't pick your siblings, you didn't pick any of it. Like you picked nothing. No, your mm. gender, your race, the political climate at the time, nothing, none of it. We were just thrown into that. And I, I always say we were always trying to navigate those thrownness since that, um, since the cars that we were dealt with. Now, I noticed that those thrownness can throw, can throw, throw us off balance um, in terms of building resilience. Now, I noticed that uh, you work with your clients to empower them to discover their inner to build or discover their inner resilience and becoming self-aware how do you do this for me in the end it, you know whether I'm working with a group um, with a, a team in the corporate environment I don't do as much one-to-one -one stuff anymore if I'm honest with you most of what I do is is group work and I think actually there's real value in the group work as well yeah. it's about it's about creating a space that evokes curiosity um from a non-judgmental standpoint of why i show up in the way that i do and i think that if people can do that then they'll find out the resources that they need i think most people at their core know what they need they need somebody to hold their hand to to search and feel safe enough to go and find what they need and everybody knows what it is within them uh, yeah. but they just need to find it and that's kind of what i do in a number of different ways really i try and create spaces um, through kind of reflective exercises as well as reflecting yeah. on myself um, and things like breath work and stuff like that um, yeah. just to, to help one, yes. yeah I knew it was coming uh, 
to get you know just to get people to 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 be able to do that yeah yeah oh excellent so and another thing i noticed about your instagram you guys you have to follow him on instagram because he has a lot of stuff and he's so insightful and he's great and i've jumped on many of your lives by the way i don't know if you ever i, I jump in as recovery from fragmented families when you go online yeah it's hard there's so like i um off on one normally when I'm on them so I do and sometimes notice things sometimes I don't yeah so I know on one of you spoke about how you blame much of bad things and behaviors that you had previously done on alcohol but then when you stopped drinking you noticed that those behaviors were still there how did you begin to process that that's hard that's hard you know because I think when you stop drinking then you, you like think all my problems are going to be gone now because all of the bad things that I did was because of our, because I had a problem yeah. with alcohol. Yeah. And then I think like for a little while you do completely change all your, of your behaviors, right? Because life feels amazing and you're not drinking. Yeah. And then they creep back in and, and, and now you can't blame alcohol, right? Because they're just, they're there. Um, and that's hard. And I think the, the key component is the yeah. ability to be gut level honest with myself Mm. and then and then making sure i have people in my life that i can be gut level honest on gut level honest with too yeah. so that i can bring it to them and say here's what i'm experiencing here's what here's what i feel what role i think i've played in this yes um and then let me feel supported in this space to, to navigate the changes that i need to make um in my life to be able to kind of free myself from from you know behavioral addictions because this is the thing yeah i've picked up loads of different addictions since i've stopped using alcohol, alcohol and drugs right but many of them are addictions uh, that yeah. society doesn't stigmatize yeah or that society will applaud you for um yeah so yeah and things like exercise society would always applaud you for that or overworking burning out oh you're very committed you're hard work but you're literally working yourself to the ground yeah. uh, Society applauds you for that because it means you're a stand-up person, you're a hard worker, and you know the shaming about people who are not working, right? Yeah. So now it's like you're a stand-up person, but really, really and then if you're working out, it's like great, you're looking after your body, but is it working out or is it escapism? Yeah, oh, you're running, yeah, yeah. Um, helping people is another great one, right? I'm oh, yes. running, running around trying to help everybody else, and uh, I'm doing it so that I don't have to face that thing that I'm struggling to face, you know? Yes. So. But nobody's calling you out on it. Nobody's saying, Josh, you help too many people, right? Nope. But, uh, so, you know, in some ways, I've just become more clever in the addictions that I pick up, right? Because yeah. uh, it's easier to be in denial when nobody's calling you out. That's true. And you say, you know, addiction has two elements to, is the behavior, if there's a behavioral addiction, as you mentioned, and there's a chemical addiction, which is the things to do with substance, drugs and alcohol, et cetera. And it, I guess they all have a different way of, yeah, it's like you exchange one, you substitute for another one, I guess. Yeah, yeah look, I think my alcohol addictions and stuff like that, yeah. I think the, the, the biggest component in them uh, was the emotional side of it, more yeah. than the physical side, you know, because I, I, I got um, physically sober loads of times when I used to drink. Yeah. Uh, and we know that not everybody that goes through detox never goes back. In fact most go back so they kept become completely physically free of the addiction yeah. and, and most of them and that's you know hard 
to admit, but most of them go back to it. So we have to recognize that it, the, the other component must be stronger. You know, I was going to say that because over the years, my uh, my family member who's um, addic- uh, who suffers addiction, and this has been going on for almost sixteen years, fifteen years, and there've been spite of time when they've completely clean. I mean, I mean, the longest I think was like a year, and then after that, when they went back, they would literally went back like it was two hundred percent back. And I see this cycle. Sometimes it's six months. Sometimes it's four weeks. Sometimes, but. And in the end, I feel, I, I, I love to study neuroscience and how, why we behave the way we do. And I often find that the brain likes to go back to what's familiar. So if naturally, even for, for someone like myself with no addiction, I like to go to this familiar feeling. Now imagine if you couple that with um, chemical elements in your brain that lacks that familiarity. We're talking about a very powerful force here. Mm. It's incredibly powerful. Because the, yeah, yeah. the brain, new change, the brain trying to do anything new is scary. Now we know whatever you try to just do to the brain, even if it's good for the brain, it'll be like, no, danger, keep away, let's run away. We don't want this. Let's just go back to what we know. Yeah. Whether it's drinking, whether it's drug, whether it's too overwork, whether it's too whatever addiction that is, even the thought processes is what is familiar to the brain. It will always try to navigate you towards that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll always go back to what it assumes is comfortable for you exactly yeah. So yeah yeah if you have to sum it down um what is addiction to you like what 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 does addiction mean because i think when we think of addiction we only just think of yeah okay is it the chemical behavior but what is addiction uh i like dr gabor mate's um definition of what he gives he says anything that we do for temporary relief that has an adverse effect in us on us in the long run but that we continue to do anyway and become obsessive about and i think when you look at it like that i think we all sit somewhere on a sliding scale with a, a number of different things right all of us yeah i believe that um and so yeah that's kind of that's what i look at addiction as being really mm. okay I've got a couple more questions before we round up the interview because our time is running and thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Um, you speak of um, sadness being triggered by shame. Uh, I, I watched uh, one of your reels. You said, oh, you know, sadness has been triggered by things like shame. And you link that to stemming from childhood when, say, parents cannot meet, um, help you to comprehend some of the complex emotions. Are you able to explain more on this one? Yeah, so... Uh... What I think is that sadness isn't the problem. So sadness, I wouldn't say sadness says, comes always comes from shame. Sadness comes yeah. from things that make us feel sad. Yeah. Um, but sadness isn't the problem. Like sadness is, um, there's nothing wrong with sadness. It's appropriate to feel sad when sad things happen. And, you know, the problem is, is that we feel a sense of shame when we feel our sadness. And I think we developed that sense of shame mm-hmm. um, when we were children. Um, yeah. You know, we sensed that our parents didn't like it when we were sad. Yeah. Uh, because we wanted them to like us and love us and you know to be able to be with us we developed a sense of shame whenever we felt sad so that we didn't express and feel our sadness so the problem isn't sadness the problem is the sense of shame that I feel as a result of feeling sad yeah and I think I remember one time you're, you're doing your live I can't remember when I think it's going back a few weeks ago and um, you touched on this idea that when a child we tell kids, oh, it's okay, because we don't really want to help manage their emotions at the time or something, something along that lines. So it's like what we're essentially saying to the child is that I cannot help you with your emotions right now. I don't even know how to do this. So I'm going to tell you, I'm going to minimize them. I'm just going to say it's fine. 
don't cry, don't do this, because it's something about me that I cannot help you during this process. Yeah, yeah. So I think we all do it, right? Like, I know that I don't want to say to my kids, stop being a baby, stop crying, right? Yeah. Kids don't cry. I know that I'm not supposed to say that, right? And I know that I don't want to say that. Yeah. But I'll trick and deceive myself into saying it a different way. So I'll say, everything's fine. Don't worry. You don't have to cry. This is fine. Don't cry. Which is the same thing. So that, or it, the, the, the child hears, hears the same thing. It, what they hear is, I can't be with my parent in my sadness. Dad doesn't want me to be sad. Yeah. So let, let me make sure that I'm not. Let yeah. me make sure that whenever I feel sadness, I find a way to disconnect from it. And I think it's particularly true for, for, for boys. And I'm generalizing, of course. But like, I know lots of, of, of men that find it very difficult to connect with their body when they experience emotions um, like sadness. So, you know, men will tend to get angry Men tend to get angry because that's a more acceptable reaction for a man. Exactly. Whereas women, you do that. People struggle when women get really angry and just. Um, well, women, women will be labeled crazy very quickly. Uh, so so if, if, a, if, a, if a young boy throws a chair in a class, yeah. He'll be taken out and told to calm down. Yes. If a young girl starts throwing a chair in a class, she'll probably get taken to the doctor. Yes. Because she's crazy much quicker. Exactly. Right? And then you're called hysterical as well. Exactly. Because, because of societal um, expectations. Yes. Right. So, so, so they're a huge, they, they have, they, they have a huge um, influence, not just on how we perceive people, but how we medicate them as well. Exactly. And how we treat them. Exactly. And how we treat them. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's big. There, there's a lot, I think, that we need to, yeah. to do to uncover that stuff. Um, Definitely. Children, yeah. Now, I was going to ask you, I noticed you do a lot of breath work. For my listeners who are not familiar with breath work, what is that? And how do you help your clients through the various sort of traumatic experiences that they have and to recovery? How does breath work work? So look, there's, there's loads and loads of different types of breath work, right? Let me just say that quickly. So there's lots of different ways you can do calming breath, which is, you know, often done through the nose with a longer exhale. And that helps us bring us back gently into our body. The breath work for emotional release that I do is slightly different to that. That's about doing a breathing pattern for a long period of time so that you go past the rational part of your brain yeah. and you're into the emotional part. You know what we were saying earlier about the brain doesn't want you to go there and it will try and stop you. Yes. um this is what happens when we do the breath work for emotional release people will you, you have to coach them through it so that they can get to that point um and so you do a breathing pattern normally for around 26 minutes oh um and mm -hmm. what happens is is that at the end of it um people have massive emotional release M like massive emotional release the reason it's so good for me is because i'm very good at talking my self around emotions so people can say how do you feel and i can say well i felt really sad and i felt angry as well and i recognize and i will say the words mm -hmm. because i'm very good at talking myself around them i'll say the words and i'll never feel why i actually felt mm. so i will use good words to avoid having to feel how i feel and i think that's true for a lot of people they will talk themselves around and say exactly what's needed to be said without ever having to feel it this emotional release breath work that i do mm -hmm. um will almost certainly take you straight to the emotion so it's not um you have it's kind of not for the mm. faint-hearted faint for, for i have to say to people if you're not ready to experience trapped emotion don't do this mm. uh and what you find is a lot of uh, people are shaking as the emotion leaves their body there's a lot of shaking a lot of crying and i get people to scream at the end as well which brings a massive emotional release so 
Yeah, I think people underestimate when you've got those trapped emotions and unhealed emotions, just how much, you know, imagine when people release their tremoring, could you imagine what's doing into the body? You yeah, know? yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I, I see people shake crazy because of yeah. the emotion trapped in their body, yeah. Particularly in their hips, which tends to be where we trap a lot of the emotions is in the hips, so the hips will really, really shake violently oh, sometimes. really? In the hips? I, I would have thought maybe it was on a heart centre or something, or in a gut. Um, yeah, well, it's, I mean, it can be everywhere for a lot of people. A lot yeah. of people often experience a lot of different stuff. Um, but certainly the emotion comes out uh, for, for, for most people that do it. Yeah. yeah. I know to myself, it's normally in the gut. And uh, sometimes if it's so intense, when I'm experiencing something in such an intense way, I can actually vomit. That's how, when I have was, you can literally, for no reason, out of random, I can just feel it to the point that my stomach contracts. And everything comes back up again. So I know when I'm head to that stage, that's when I really just need to go in the room and meditate the hell out. Yeah. And do you know what? It's one of the reasons why I don't like the term mental health. Yes. Because to tell me when I'm feeling an emotion that it's, yeah. that it's a mental thing and that it's in my head is yeah. absolutely ridiculous because every emotion has a real physical feeling in it. A real, you know, a very physical feeling. You know, if you say to somebody, "How are you feeling?" and they tell you a word, and I say, "Where did you feel that?" which is a, a lot of this the work that I would do, not "How did you feel?" Tell me where you felt it. Yeah. And then people, you you know, people will say sometimes it'll be in the throat or it can be in yeah. the heart. It can be, so it's very very physical, and it does a massive disservice to say it's in the mind. It is. I think Gabba Mate wrote a book about um, something about the body. I can't remember the title. Come across it. It's quite Bessel van der Kolk wrote a book called The Body Keeps the Score. The Body Keeps the Score. Yeah. Yes, that one. And I've got an audience. And it's uh, it's incredible, actually, the way he talks about we can feel in different areas. And that's definitely true. And I know for me, it's always either my, on my chest or my, my gut, specifically my gut. And if it's on my, I just get a headache. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. No, I relate yeah. to all of that. It does. Oh, so I noticed that you've got something coming up in June, Inner Work 3.0. Yeah, so it's called Inner You. Uh, yeah. which is a, it's a six week thing. Um, and basically it's all of the things that I've used really to be able to turn within and address some of the things that I've struggled with. So there's like pre-recorded exercises that people do that. And each week for six weeks, they get access to more content. Um, yeah. and then once a week as well on a lot, we do a live session on zoom. Mm -hmm. Um, and we talk about, the exercises that they've done over the week and then we finish with a massive breath work yeah. for emotional release and visualization as well so um yeah i've run it a few times already and um it's been incredible people have had incredible experiences so yeah i'm looking forward to doing it again yeah okay so guys i'm gonna put the link to the, the, the his website link on the show notes so you can if you're interested in doing that you can go and you also do the breath work um in live sessions or they just you do them online uh, so I do lots of online ones. When I do them online, they're for all genders. And then once a month, I do something called Uncommon Man, which is where we bring um, anyone that identifies as a man is welcome to come along. And we, we do a little bit of emotional work and then we do a massive emotional release breathwork session. And that's in person. Yeah. Oh, great. So again, I'll put those details in the show notes below because I'm pretty sure there's, um, you know, the way you convey the message, I'm sure it will benefit any guy out there. Um, yeah, yeah. Society will typically... Uh, suppressing much of the emotions all the time so, absolutely yeah okay so what's one piece as we round up this interview and it's gone over slightly um <laughs> so as we round up the interview what is one piece of advice you would give to somebody 
who's listening right now, who's struggling with addiction or struggling dealing with a loved one who has an addiction? Um, I guess one piece of advice would be, whether it's you or someone that you know, is get some people around you, get some help and support, particularly from people that have experienced something similar. Yeah. Um, community of some kind is probably the best thing that yeah. I've found that helped me, yeah. Okay. And where can my listeners find you? Uh, I'm probably most active, like you've said, on it on, on Instagram, which is just yeah. Josh underscore FFW. And all my links can be found on my website, uh, which is just joshconnolly.co.uk. Oh, brilliant. Well, Josh, thank you so much for this interview. And thank it's, you. it's been lovely uh, talking to you. And your, I would say your openness and transparency is incredible. Thank you. Uh, yeah, so guys, um, don't forget, I'm going to put all the details in the show notes below. Please go and follow him on Instagram. And um, all his details will be on the show notes. And Josh, thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. You are welcome.